morning, ladies. It is so great to be here on a foggy, foggy morning. It is my the beginning of my favorite season, which is boot season. <laughs> Just letting you know, I love my boots. So let's uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are here, and we worship you. We are grateful for the fact that you have brought us together today. We are grateful for these women in this room, for those who are still coming. We pray for safety on the roads, as we know traffic is really bad today. Lord Jesus, we give this time to you. In your name we pray, amen. So I have told you before about my brother. My brother John, um, he was not the rebellious type, at least on the surface. Um, I, I was. Uh, was is probably wrong. I still am in, in a lot of ways. Um, I just hide it better. Um, but you know, I, we talked last year, if you were here, um, about how he would, uh, if our parents asked us to do something, he would say yes and then not do it. Um, well, I would say no, stomp out of the room, and then come slinking back later when no one was looking and actually do it. So we're both rebellious in our own way, right? Um, but let me tell you about my child. Because he takes rebellious, or when he was little, um, he took rebellious to a whole new level. My, my husband is a very... Um, kind of easygoing, go along with it kind of person, very, um, you know, rule follower, kind of all that stuff. Um, and he, he never understood this about our son. Um, our son, he's a wonderful young man now, and he, uh, I will preface this by saying he does not act this way anymore. So um, he'll be 20 in just about a little bit more than a month, um, and he's amazing. Um, but I want to tell you a story that to, to us really signifies not necessarily rebellion, but just the, the independent spirit that goes, just flows through his veins. So we're at a party one time, a little part outside barbecue at this park. Um, it was a park at Microsoft, it was a Microsoft party when my husband worked there. And um, they have this huge field, there's a baseball diamond um, and you know some other sports fields around. And then at the, at the edge of this field, um, there are trees. So we're sitting next to the uh, baseball diamond, and we are having this little barbecue thing, and we're chit-chatting, and Jonathan was about 18 months old. So he's a, he's a little guy. And our friend, um, his name is John. He is my, one of my husband's best friends. He said at the time, he's like, no, 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 let him run because as soon as he figures out that you're not following him, he'll turn around and he'll come back. Oh. <laughs> so the tree line was about 200 yards away, okay, because it had a, it was a baseball diamond and then a soccer field, right? So think about how far that is. So we, we stood there, the three adults, um, John and myself and my husband David, and we stood there and we watched our two, you know, 18-month-old son run across that field until he was about two-thirds of the way there. And finally, John says, he's not turning around. <laughs> and we're like, no. And my husband took off running. 
and caught him and brought him back. So our son is very, very independent, and that, as a young child, it come, comes across as rebellious in a lot of ways. Do you, do you recognize that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, some of you might have children or no children who are like that. My son did tell, oh, tell me I could share that story with you, by the way. Uh, he actually laughed. We were talking about it last night, and I asked him, can I tell one of these three stories? And he's, he said, yeah, of course. Um, and, and he's like, what stories are you talking about? And so I told him the three stories, and he, he just starts laughing, because he knows. He was there. <laughs> so we're shifting at this point in Hosea from this um, the husband and wife motifs that we had in chapters 1 through 3, um, and now we're shifting to a parent-child motif. It is reasonable to assume, knowing what we know about how the prophets worked, um, that the children that were born to Hosea in chapters 1 through 3 have now grown up to just past their teenage years. Can I get a, a, some head nods on that for teenage years? Yep, yep, rebellious children. Um, so they have grown up. He is probably at this point, he has probably been a single parent. Um, and so he has gone through this whole struggle of parenting teenagers, being a single parent. Um, he's been, lived through this adulterous marriage, um, and his wife has left him and to go off and do her prostituting some more. So Hosea has lived through all of this. So he shifts the story um, into a motif that is more in line with where he's at now. So I want you to look for, as we're going through, especially in ch chapter 11, um, I want you to look for the child, parent-child motifs, the child learning to walk and being comforted. The rebellion and tough love. This hurts me more than it hurts you idea. And then the homecoming. There's a comparison to the prodigal son that happens in this next, um, this next chapter of Hosea. Uh, there's another thing I want you to pay attention to, and this is kind of the format we're going to go in. We're moving from the past, this, this idea of moving out of Egypt to the immediate future, which is back to Egypt, right? Back to a, a place of servitude um, and not being uh, independent. The present loving parent, and then the distant future where they get to come home from Egypt. So let's start out in the past, out of Egypt. In verses 1 through 4, the motif of parent and child is introduced using a bunch of I statements. I loved, I called, I taught to walk, I healed, I led. So it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the balls, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek. Isn't that a special image? Lifting this little child to your cheek, it's like a very comforting, nurturing 
image. At a later time in this, these chapters, God will be referred to as a holy one, the one who is transcendent, the one that is out there. But this is an image of God that is very much right here, right literally in your face, lifting us to the cheek, right? Literally in your face. So this, this is a picture of God that is both transcendent and what we call in the theological terms, immediate, which is kind of a weird word. Um, it's very personal. It's a parent teaching the child to walk, comforting close-knit. Then we move to the future. So this is not the immediate future, but this is, you know, look out, guys, this is what's coming. Um, back to Egypt, back to exile. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them, because they refuse to repent? A sword will, will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. So Egypt represents bondage. It has for, for centuries at this point, right? They came out of Egypt. They had this their own land um, for a time. But Egypt has always been a place of bondage. And therefore, they have this new place of bondage, which is Assyria. But even in the midst of their rebellion, there's this hope. Do you see that? There's this hope. I'm going to get my little pointer up here so I can point it out. You see this right here? My people. My people. Isn't that cool? Even in the midst of all this, even in the midst of um, this, this awful stuff, they're, they're talking about wars, destruction, awful stuff, devouring, he says, Scott is still saying, they are my people. And you notice that here, um, they shift. There's a shift to they language. We were in I language right before, and now we have shifted into they language. Then we move, we move into the present, the loving parent. And just think of this as the, like I said before, this hurts me more than it hurts you, right? Put that in this context. How can I give you up, Ephraim? Remember, Ephraim is the term, another term for Israel, the northern kingdom, right? That's what we're talking about. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim were two um, towns that were destroyed at the same time as Sodom and Gomorrah. So but that, that's the context for that. My heart is changed within me. All of my co compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. There's the Holy One. I will not come against their cities. So we're back here to I language. God is talking about what's going on here in his own um, person. The rebellion that Israel has been ex expressing um, in their attempt to be independent from God um, is causing this child, the, the child, Ephraim, Israel, to suffer, right? We know that as parents, um, those of us who have been parents or those of us who have been a child, which is all of us, um, we know that when we rebel, suffering happens, right? 
suffering happens, not because the parent has, has done something, but because we, we messed up and we suffer because of it. This is a, a vision of the parent agonizing over this rebellion of the child. I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. So we have in this same chapter this transcendence and that this intimacy of the parent and child. He is both the parent who makes the rules and the loving parent who embraces um, the, the suffering child who is experiencing the result of their um, rebellion. Then we move into the distant future. They will follow like a lion. They will, I'm sorry, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling to, from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. So this is the distant future. So the time when you come back, when God comes back um, to redeem his people, he's going to bring them back out of, his, out of Assyria and bring them, settle them back in their homes um, in this comforting place. But he's going to do it roaring like a lion. I love in this, this last few chapters of Hosea, the, the animal imagery, we'll see a little bit more later. Um, there's so much animal in imagery and that, you know, my, my, my little kitties are kind of like lions in some ways. Um, this morning, my one cat, um, he was walking into our kitchen. Um, one thing you need to know is that our kitchen has this little island that has a drawer in it. And whenever that drawer uh, is opened, both of our cats come like running because that's the snack drawer. It also holds extra napkins. So if the napkin holder that's out on the table is empty, we have to open the drawer and then we have to give the cat snacks because they know that that's, that's it. But my cat has my husband trained. <coughs> Excuse me. So he has got my husband trained. So he leads my husband, literally, he leads him. Um, all the way up to, from upstairs, down the stairs, into the kitchen, meowing the whole time, right? Are you following me? And he looks back and he's like, are you following me? Are you following me? He's meowing and he's meowing and he leads him right to that drawer. So this morning, I walk into the kitchen and then very shortly behind me is the cat and my husband. And the cat is meowing, 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 meowing. He heads right for that drawer. And my husband says, I know you want treats. I know you do. You haven't had any for, you know, 20 minutes. <laughs> and then the cat's meowing and meowing. He's got his paws up on the, on the handle of the drawer. And he's like, please, please give me treats. So he did. <laughs> the next time I walk into the room, there's the cats eating their little treats and having a great time and very happy. And then as soon as that little boy cat um, realized that he was out of treats, first he goes and looks at his sister's pile to see if she's got any more left. Um, she didn't, so then he went back to that drawer and started begging again. 
he likes his treats. So that's, that's our lion story for the day. <laughs> our next section is going to get us back into this kind of doom hope um, cycle that we have seen throughout the book of Hosea. It's, it's a very common prophetic um, uh, genre. Um, so we'll see this throughout this year. We're going to see this doom hope um, cycle come around and around and around. Um, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. So this is verse 11, 12 in all of your Bibles, right? Yes? Um, it is 12, 1 in the Hebrew Bible which is really interesting. I don't know why. Uh, they have different numbering sometimes in the Hebrew Bible, which um, you have to know these things or else you get really lost when you're trying to read in Hebrew. Um, and this is kicking off this final major part of Hosea. Um, and then in 12.1, it says, Ephraim feeds on the land and pursues the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. So do you hear the complaint that God is making here? He's saying, you're relying on those people. You're trying to get hope from those people. You're not relying on me. And then we get back into some legal charges. In chapter 12, verses 2 through 6, we have um, charges, just like we had um, in chapter 4. This is another movement in the trial. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he grasped his brother's evil as a man who struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. But you must return to your God, maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. So the story of Jacob here, here's the parallel right here in 4.1. Um, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. You see how there's that parallel. Here are the charges. Here are the charges. So we have... Um, the story of Jacob. Now, do you remember Jacob? He's the guy who, um, his name was changed. Do you remember what his name was changed to? Israel. Israel, right? So Jacob is a really important part, uh, person in the history of Israel because that's where they get their name. Um, and then the word Israel means one who strives or fights with God. Sound like... Israel? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we have these three stories from Jacob's time. And in using these stories, Hosea is saying something like, guess what? Israel, Ephraim, you're just like Israel, Jacob. You are chips off the old block. You are part of the DNA that's consistent here. So the first story is from Genesis 25. You all know this story, right, where um, 
Isaac and Rebecca are having twins, and uh, Rebecca is in, in labor, and they, the twins come out, first Esau and then Jacob, but Jacob is grabbing on to the heel of Esau, so they come out basically together. Um, and here we have Jacob who is fighting to be the firstborn. We know later that he does get the firstborn birthright, right? By, by tricking his father into blessing him as the firstborn. Um, but this is a story of Jacob who, even from the womb, is self-centered and contentious. He's fighting. Our next story is from Genesis 32. Um, and this is where um, Jacob is literally fighting with an angel. So not only is Jacob striving with men, he is striving with an angel. He is a fighter, that Jacob. The third incident is from Genesis 28. I'm only showing a portion of this story. Um, but the, this incident happened uh, chronologically before the one uh, with the angel. Um, but in Hosea, Hosea gives the most weight to this one. He, he spends a little bit more time um, talking about this story than the other two. The other two are just little phrases, and then this one he gives a couple verses to. Um, so this one is about um, the angels, the dream that, that Jacob has, right? The angels going up and down the ladder. Uh, there are no specific charges in this one, um, as in this retelling in Hosea, um, but the context of the story from Genesis is that Jacob is running for his life from his brother, right? He is running from his, for his life. Um, and Hosea is perhaps thinking about the fact that Jacob has spent his whole life in conflict with others even to the point of being in fear for his life. And that's the story of Israel as well. That's what, what Hosea is trying to communicate. But notice here in verse 15 in, in the Genesis passage, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to the land. So not only is Hosea telling this story of a life full of strife, a life full of conflict. But he is also saying, but I am still with you, and I will still bring you back. And in parallel, Genesis 28:15 and Hosea 12, 6, um, I just read 15, but you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. There's this piece of hope. Here's the hope in the doom hope cycle, right? Um, that with God's help, you will be brought back. Um, and Hosea adds this challenge. Maintain love and justice. Wait for God. This is the path back to your homeland, to me. So this is a quote from James Lindbergh, one of the theologians that I was studying in preparation to this. 
um, this, this is a message to Israel. Even though you are about to leave your homeland just as Jacob was, this is not the end. God is not through with you yet. With God's help and because of his love for you, you will one day return. In the meantime, hold on to love for God and your neighbor. Maintain justice in your society so that the powerless are cared for and be patient. The God in whom you place your hopes and still has some surprises for you. And that's a message for us too, right? Maintain your hope. Do these things because they're the right thing to do, because they show that you love God, and maintain your hope. Wait for God, even in the midst of trouble. Even in the midst of trouble, wait for God. In 12.6, um, that I just read, the word hesed, love, is hesed in Hebrew. Um, and this is a word that is used a lot in the Old Testament and here. It's understood as love for God, which then flows out to love for others. In Amos 5.24, it says, let justice flow, roll down like a river. And here we have in Hosea, we have maintain love, chesed, and justice. In Micah 6, 8, another prophet, what does the Lord require of you? Do justly, love mercy, which is chesed, and walk humbly with God the same words that are being used here in chapter 12 of Hosea, Micah 6.8. So Jacob's story moves from this confession of sin on the banks of Jebok with the angel, right? I have, I'm not worthy, bless me, to good news at Bethel. I am with you, and I will bring you back. So does Israel's story, and so does our story. Verses 7 and 8, um, we go back to that doom-hope cycle, right? Um, here, we're going back in, into doom. There's an accusation. Remember, we're still in a kind of a trial situation. The accusation, the merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich, and I have become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. And then we have punishment. Yay! Are you excited? We've got punishment. <laughs> so exciting. Um, I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of your appointed festivals. I spoke to the prophets, gave them many visions, and was told parables through them. Is Gilead wicked? Its people are worthless. Do they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal? Their altars will like be like piles of stone on a plowed field. Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Israel served to get a wife, and to pay for her, he tended sheep. The Lord used a prophet to bring Israel up from Egypt. By a prophet, he cared for him. But Ephraim has aroused his bitter anger. His Lord will leave, leave on him the guilt of his bloodshed and will repay him for his contempt. 
That is not pretty. Then we move into chapter 13, which is the stench of death. Hosea uses his imagination. He's got a really good imagination. I don't know if you've noticed that before now, but he really does have a great imagination, and he is starting to really bump that imagination up and really delve deeply into his imagination. So he's using this imagination to deliver a chilling message in literal terms and with images. So he has four sayings that are permeated with this stench of death, a charge and a punishment. The first saying is in verses 1 through 2, with the punishment in verse 3. So the charge is he was um, become guilty of fall worship, and he died. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves. They fashion images, blah, blah, blah. Calf, they're going to kiss the calf idols. Isn't that cool? Can kiss a little calf idol? Um, and then the, the um, punishment is they will be like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping through a window. So all of these things are things that just disappear, right? They disappear and they are no more. It's not like they disappear because they've gotten small and scattered around, right? They just disappear. Stench of death, part two. Verses 4 through 6 is the accusation, and verse 7 and 8 is the punishment. Um, now, remember in 11.14, God said to wait, right? Love God, love your neighbor, and wait for me. Um, and here, they are forgetting him. And the punishment, I will be like a lion. Here's the, that imagery, right? I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will work by the path, like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. Sounds fun, huh? Some great imagery there. Bench of death, part three. The first two sayings were about how they are worshiping, right? Um, these are sayings about you are worshiping other gods, you are worshiping Baals, you are kissing the calf, right? Um, and you are not worshiping me. This one is about the monarchy. 